Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Lee Davey, a founder of The Truth About Alcohol. He says, at The Truth About Alcohol, we offer a home for people who are not comfortable with the brain disease theory promoted by Alcoholics Anonymous. We believe alcoholism is an invisible, violent and dominant belief system. We believe in exposing this truth, raising awareness through action and finding freedom after quitting alcohol. An extraordinary young man with an extraordinary story. I'm delighted to introduce you to Lee Davey. Welcome to the show, Lee. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. I'm not going to spoil this by telling everybody what this is all about. So I'll let you tell your story. Well, first of all, what's your superpower? What's my superpower? My superpower is I don't drink alcohol. Very cool. That's, that's my great, superpower. That's a great. That's a great segue. So, don't <laughs> drink alcohol. Why don't you drink alcohol? I. What's the story grew, behind it? Okay, I grew up in. I was born in Manchester in the UK, so I'm one of the only Manchester United fans who was actually born in Manchester. But I did leave there when I was ten, and I moved to a small Welsh mining town called Ogmore Valley in South Wales, mm. and. Uh, it is about 8,000 people live there. And when you move from there to Manchester, it's like it's, it's a huge thing as a kid, a 10-year-old. And it was my first exposure to really being alone and really being disconnected, having to go to school and make friends from scratch. And I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, obviously. But in order to make friends, I decided that I would try to fit in rather than belong uh, try the, the the easiest route, and um, fitting in in Ogmore Vale meant that you you drank alcohol. It was ubiquitous. Your parents just spent all their time in the pub, uh, and you really aspired to one day follow in their footsteps and and drink. You know, you you wanted to have sex. You wanted to drink. I mean, I know it sounds really silly. When you're a kid, you can't wait to have a cup of tea, like your mum giving you a cup of tea and trusting you to hold that hot liquid. Like you feel like you've made it. And alcohol was a little bit like that. So I grew up drinking it. I was 14 when I had my first pint. My uh, my dad bought it for me. And that goes to show you how, you know, the culture is embedded there with alcohol. And he, he I drank. You, he bought you a pint at the age of 14. What he did was uh, he sp- we were on holiday and he spoke to the barman and told the barman that I was his boy and I was going to go up and order a pint. And he gave me the money and told me to go and get my pint. So I went to the bar at 14 and bought my pint. And I, I have a little uh, talk on that, that I'm trying to get onto the moth stage. Bernadette told me to get on the moth and do it. It's called my first pint around that. And, I, and as I said in that little talk, the look on my father's face when I came back with that pint was pure pride because he was a he was a guy who never hugged me, never kissed me, never played with me, always made me feel like I was in his way, didn't really think he liked me much. And yet when he bought my when I when I was there drinking my first pint, he was different. He was animated. And it was because we connected. It was the only way he knew how to connect with me. Mm. And and years later, I, I speak to him about it. And he tells me that that's the way he connected with his dad. It's like alcohol is like the social glue and the stories around alcohol are what kind of keeps the belief system that alcohol is normal and pleasurable together. So I grow up 
drinking it, just thinking it's normal. Mm. And 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 what by normal like Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, all day Sunday, just really banging it down me like it, mm. insane. And it and then when I I got married very early, had my boy Jude, and then you can't go out as much drinking because you have your son, so you start drinking at home, and then you invite all your friends who've got their kids. And they're just there on their Nintendos while you're all drinking. And that's when it, it got really out of line because you're not paying attention to your how much you're drinking. There's no limit. Nobody's kicking you out at Stop Tap, you know? Yeah. Was um, this a problem for your dad? I mean, did he was he somebody who drank that much while you were a child? My dad is a prime example of somebody suffering from what I call the death effect. So somebody who is quite clearly got a problem with alcohol, but doesn't realize he has a problem with alcohol. And where I grew up, pretty much everybody, you know, you take, it's very, it's very difficult, but like everybody you knew drunk too much alcohol. Mm. And the definition of an alcoholic um, doesn't help. And I'll explain, I'll explain why in a little bit, but yeah, my mum and dad, Huge problems with alcohol, you know, um, because all they did, that's their only social outlet was yeah, in the so pub. So your mom was the same? Mom was the same, yeah. My yeah. my sisters today, all the same. So I realized around 2007, 2008, that my marriage was falling apart. So we'd been together 15 years and we were just arguing all the time and the common denominator was alcohol. <clears throat> and I felt that my wife would never give up drinking but I thought if I did, then she would drink less. So I basically bought a book called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Alcohol. I knew that it would work because I gave up smoking, reading that book uh, 10 years earlier. And I gave up. And then the way that Alan Carr helps you give up, Moyes, is he helps you to see that alcohol doesn't offer you the value that you believe that it does. Mm. And with giving up drinking, you develop a razor sharp clarity and you start philosophizing and asking yourself questions and and really growing your self-knowledge in ways that I'd never done before. And I realized that alcohol was a story. And and the story was that drinking a powerful poison that kills 3.3 million people a year was normal and pleasurable. And nobody knew about the 3.3 million people a year. Yeah. We did we didn't even know it was a poison, we didn't know it was a drug. We just knew it was this brilliant stuff mm. that led us to utopia mm. and all the sex and all the connections and all the wonderful things in life. And the nastiness that came with that, you know, the infidelity, in my case, um, during a holiday in Cyprus, beaten, stabbed, and nearly dying, all those things were acceptable. And, and the way that you deal with that is you turn those disasters into funny jokes, stories again. Yeah. So when I got stabbed and nearly died in Cyprus, I turned it into a joke. And we would have a laugh about it. Hey, remember that time in Cyprus when you got really drunk and you got stabbed and nearly died? Wasn't well, that funny? And it, it's a way of blocking the cognitive dissonance. Mm. And that cognitive dissonance is, hang on a minute, you shouldn't be drinking this stuff because it's really poisonous. Mm. So even as you're lying there, um, stabbed and bleeding, or even after that, let's say when you're in intensive care and you're reflecting on the experience, you don't see a connection between the alcohol and where you find yourself. 
No, and I never, never considered quitting. I mean, do it, do it. I was terrible with hangovers, so I would be sick and I would be vomiting blood. And there were times when I would say to myself, "Oh, not doing that again." But it was, it was akin to smoking and saying, "I'm not smoking again," and then just flinging it away and then buying another packet, like you know, the next day. There was no substance behind that. Mm. And today, when I help people quit alcohol, the vow that we take to not drink alcohol is a very serious thing. That never, ever occurred to me when I was drinking alcohol. Yeah. Do you um, think that there's a chemical addiction there, or do you think that it is deeper than that? There are social, psychological factors at play. What do you, what do you think it is? Why is it so hard? I mean, with, that, with smoking, you can say, well, it's nicotine addic- addiction. With alcohol, do you think it's just the addiction, or do you think it's more than that? <clears throat> well, interesting you say that, because when I stopped smoking it, when my boy was born, so mm-hmm. that was 18 years ago now, I tried everything to stop quitting smoking and I couldn't. And if you Google it now, it will say that nicotine is like the number one most addictive substance in, in the world. Um, certainly one or two. Alcohol's up there in the top five. But when I read Alan Carr's book, Easy Way to, Con- to Stop Smoking Permanently, and I finished it, I stopped smoking and I haven't craved a single cigarette 18 years later. Now, that, that tells me, that um, certainly raises questions in my mind. How can nicotine be the most addictive substance on the planet? And I read a book and then never crave a cigarette ever again. Surely if it was that addictive physically, I would have had cravings the moment I would have stopped smoking. But I didn't. So I left that cigarette experiment thinking that nicotine and the impact that it had on me personally as a drug was imperceptible. And that the stories around it were all psychological. Mm. So when, when I took on alcohol, I had the same idea that this was going to be psychological. So is there a chemical addiction component to alcohol? Yes. And addiction to alcohol, like addiction to anything else, is incredibly complicated. You know, it takes into consideration your genes, chemicals, your environment, your culture, and all those different types of things. But here's where I come from it, is I like to work on things that I am in control of. Mm. I don't like being out of control. So I don't like somebody telling me, for example, that I have a gene that dis, you know that, that gives me the disposition towards addiction or alcoholism. I prefer to say to myself, okay, um, here's a story I'm telling myself about alcoholism. I want to change that story and see how it plays out. And for me, I didn't drink alcohol or crave alcohol at all for three and a half years until I got divorced, which is a, another story for another time, I guess. Um, but I've now been in eight years. I drank on and off for a month in eight years when I got divorced and I haven't never craved alcohol. Like today, I don't crave it. So again, for me, it's very much psychological and very much cultural and there's a lot tied in with societal conditioning. Okay, so you're, to- you're saying essentially that we need to recondition our minds and possibly recondition our social life in order to beat this thing. Okay, so... It wasn't until, like, you've probably been in a similar situation where you've experienced something, something quite profound, and then you want to help other people with the same thing. But you need to figure out how to teach it. Like, how do I get what I know into a format that someone will understand? And it wasn't until I read a book by Melanie Joy called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, where she talks about the why we eat meat. And she said, why was it that I, I can 
be cuddling my golden retriever on my lap and loving it so much. Yeah. At the same time, I'm eating chicken and, and, and cows and not thinking about it. And she did a lot of research into it. And she realized that actually eating meat, um, me eating is a belief system. And she called it carnism. And she said that this belief system was invisible, violent and dominant. Right. And the fact that it was invisible is that people don't even question why they're eating meat. Right. So, it wasn't when I read that book, I was like, holy moly, this is what I've been searching for. Alcoholism is an invisible, violent and dominant belief system. Yeah, It's it's uh, violent because it kills 3.3 million people a year, which is more than war, murder and terrorism combined. Mm. It, uh, you only have to walk down your high street on a, on a Saturday night to see how much terror and violence is going on in the streets. And by the way, anyone who thinks that alcohol, you know, helps you chill out and relax and have a good time. Ask yourself, why are there security bounces on every single door? You don't have them at Starbucks or the library, right? Um, it's uh, dominant because in the World Health Organization report 2014, 52% of people question a, a, a drunk alcohol. And anybody can just draw Paul, 20 of their best friends. They're going to be in a minority if they're not drinking. And, and it's invisible, Moyes, because despite all of the carnage that goes on and all the destruction it leads in people's lives, Nobody questions it. It's, a, it's akin to being in Plato's cave. So I am trying to lead people out of Plato's cave, mm. but it's terrifying for them because when they see the light for the first time, they want to run back into the cave because that's what they know. That's what they're comfortable with. And when I was drinking, I was in that cave. And now we help people get out of it. So to answer your question, yeah, it's super, super is all about belief system and societal conditioning. And you do need to find new friends because what happens is when you stop drinking alcohol, or what I call become a striver, one of our members of our community, you want more out of life. Mm. And, and, and you don't want, suddenly you, you, you start to question, why are these even my friends? What value am I getting out of these friendships? And, mm. and you realize that you've been trying to fit in for so long that you've lost who you are. You become the face that used to be on the side of America's milk cartons, right? You, you just, you're not with it anymore. So where you spend your time and who you spend your time with, I like to look at it as toxic environments and toxic people. You need to get to a point and work with a support group where you walk into a room, Moyes, and you're like, I got to get out of here. Or you're with people where you say, I got to get rid of these people. And that is one of the biggest challenges because you need to be strong enough and love yourself enough to be alone for a little bit and so you kind of figure out who you are to then find the right people for you, you know? And yeah, that is a, a huge undertaking for the average person who has got a problem with, with alcohol, no question. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, your dad and your family generally, and, and then you were not even aware at the time, had no insight. How do we reach those people who have no insight? I mean, it's almost... Almost, it's not even like you go knocking on someone's door and you say, look, I'm here to tell you how bad alcohol is. Give yourself, a, take yourself off into a quiet spot, video your friends that you've you have been hanging around with and see how awful it all is. They're not going to do that because they're going to laugh at you and they're going to mock you. So how do we reach people who are, haven't yet got into the car crash situation, but are well on their way? Well, wow, that's that's a real. I mean, that's my life goal right there, and it's it's um it's 
very complicated. It, it could get you a little bit scared when you think about it. It starts with yourself, right? I mean, we have a we have a motto on the Alcohol Addiction Podcast of mine. You know, I always I always start by saying my name is Lee Davy. I'm not an alcoholic, and I refuse to be anonymous. Now, that refusal to be anonymous is key. Yeah, like I am incredibly proud that I don't drink alcohol. Mm. But is my son incredibly proud that I don't drink alcohol? He might be in himself, but is he really proud when he's in and around his mates? You know, mm. so so I, I all I can do is be the role model is be someone who doesn't drink alcohol and be and put, walk around with my up straight with me, your shoulders back with a sense of pride without too much cockiness that I'm the guy who's not drinking alcohol. I'm the guy who's won the prize here. Yeah. And then what tends to happen is people will become curious to why you're doing what you're doing. And you let that curiosity lead the right way. So people will ask you and then you can point them in, in the right direction. So support groups like we have at Strive, podcasts, incredibly important. I think it's becoming the fast fastest uh, mode of um, education uh, without paying for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, talking like this, me and you talking about it, people might go, oh, hang on a minute. He was a complete pisshead. Mm-hmm. Like I was, you know, my life. And, and let me tell you, when I was drinking alcohol and I lived in Ogmore Vale, I worked in the rail industry yeah. and I had I had a wife and a kid and all that kind of stuff. Today, I don't have a house. I travel all around the world. I don't have a job. I, I do. I, I, you know, I help people quit alcohol and, uh, and I work at poker tournaments, enjoying myself, interviewing people and stuff. I have a brand new wife. I have a new kid. Uh, my life is completely changed all because I decided to stop drinking alcohol. And the people who come to Strive, when they hear my story, they're like, wow, I'm in the same spot as you and I'm really struggling. And I know that you can empathize with that because I've heard your stories that you could do it. So you need to start off being a role model. And then the people that you help, you've got to shed that anonymity. You've got to spread the word and you've got to build the confidence in those people around you. It's almost like building an army to <laughs> Strive. We're building an army of people who can be role model for their kids. So when their kids grow up, and here's the most important thing, they have a choice. Mm. I didn't have a choice. I never made a choice about whether I was going to drink alcohol or not. It was made for me. I was designed from birth to drink. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like that anymore. Our kids can say, hmm, my dad doesn't drink and helps people stop drinking. My mom does drink. What am I gonna what am I gonna do? I've got a different choice here because my dad's pretty cool and he doesn't drink. Mm. When I was younger, it would be there's some my dad's weird because he doesn't drink. So mm. it's changing the narrative and, and, and it's changing the narrative one discussion at a time, Myers, I think. Okay. Have you seen signs of hope? Have you seen signs that that message, that very important message, is getting through even in a small way to a small community? Have you seen that? It's really difficult to answer that question because I'm a great believer that the way that the world is moving technologically and obviously the decisions that you make when you stop drinking alcohol to upscale yourself, the world that you see is pretty biased. So if I if I pick up my I, I don't look at the news, I don't watch TV, like all these things that I used to do when I was drinking, I don't do no more. So I'm aware of what's going on in the world, but I'm not interested in it. And my news feed is very curated by artificial intelligence to what I like. 
and it and it and it gives off a, a view of the world which might not be quite right. right. So it's difficult for me to answer that. However, I do know that my community in Strive is essentially Australians, New Zealanders, Americans, and British people. And we all have the same problem and we're all tackling the same issues. But the, the wealth of options now for people who are getting curious about uh, not drinking alcohol is going to be the next veganism. Like if you look around the world now, um, plant-based options are just skyrocketing yeah. because there's money in it. Yeah. Now, if we can somehow get a tipping point where there's money in non-alcoholic options and people are buying it, as opposed to alcohol, then you'll see the marketing change. Yeah. Because right now, the reason alcoholism is an invisible, violent, dominant belief system is the marketing machine behind it does such a good job of making you feel disconnected if you're not going to drink. Yeah. I think um, because of the internet and because of groups like Strive and podcasts like this, we can change that. I really do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was just reflecting as you were talking there about uh, my uh, youth and the introduction of alcohol pops at the time yes Ouch. yeah and how it became very it became that you know alcohol tasted horrible and mm. then suddenly along it tasted just like you know a coca-cola or something um and so suddenly it became palatable and it hooked even more people into drinking alcohol in fact there was a there was a lot of concern wasn't there at the time of these alcohol pops appearing that rates of alcohol abuse and if, if alcohol, I mean, you can't abuse alcohol, you can't drink it, frankly. There's no such thing as alcohol abuse. It's all abuse. Yeah. That, that rates of drinking really toxic amounts of alcohol in, increased dramatically. There was, um, because, because they dimmed the taste of it, you were likely to drink more of it. They were also worried at the time that more children would drink it and it was more marketing to children. Mm. I mean, you get the same problem today with a craft beer. Mm. Um, it's really it's really interesting because we get some craft beer aficionados that come to us at Strive and they're like, oh, you know, I, I'm really going to struggle because I love my peanut butter this and my Marmite that. And But once you get, to get them to see that they're not drinking alcohol because of the, they like the taste of it, like that's not their issue, you know. It, it, their issue is a, is number one. The core reason everybody who comes to me has a problem has a problem is because of this belief system. Mm. The belief system that alcohol is normal and pleasurable. That is the number one problem. And then there'll be a there'll be an uh, a second, I would say, like a secondary reason, which is nigh on certain going to be related to some trauma. Mm. And and trauma doesn't have to be I was raped when I was three years of age. Trauma to me was being moved from England to Wales at 10 yeah. and having to fit into a brand, brand new culture. Yeah. Well, Lee, you said that you were one of the few Man United fans who, who were actually born in Manchester. But the other thing about you is that you are, like the Man United team, a superstar. And clearly your superpower, and we're very proud to say this, is that you don't drink alcohol. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Myers. I appreciate it. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.